Henry. Glad to be with you guys tonight. Um, I want to, before we look at God's Word, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 15 tonight. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if not, we, you can do that in a minute. Um, do we have any prayer requests? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 15. And uh, <clears throat> last time, I've, I've, I've preached this, or uh, one other place, or two other places, I think. And Laura told me that last time that I did, did, did this sermon, that as soon as I started out with my first illustration, my son said, oh no, not again. <laughs> so, much to the chagrin of my little one, we're going to go at it again. Psalm 15. Uh, we find that David describes the type of holy living required to walk in the presence of God. And it's amazing to me to think about this text. I was asked to preach this text. This is not one that I had chosen. Uh, and somebody asked me to preach this at their church uh, in the past. <clears throat> and um, I was not of the mind, and I did not think that the thing that would jump out of the pages to me as I go to Psalm 15 would have been God's holiness. That is exactly what this passage is about. It's about a holy God that, and that His holiness dictates, mandates, directs, calls, implores our holiness as a people of God. So let's read Psalm 15. It says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor or takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Um, I was made aware of this little vermin, if you will, this little animal. He's a weasel called an ermine. I don't know if you ever heard of an ermine before. But he's basically like a little small weasel. And he is mo mostly in the forest of northern uh, Europe and Asia, East Asia, and is, I think, uh, used for, or known for, his snow white fur. And hunters would uh, try to trap these animals and try to hunt these animals for their fur. And in the olden th times, whenever they did this, they learned that the best way to catch an ermine was to smear his home with some sort of grease or some sort of uh, something dirty because the ermine would give his life for his purity he would not go in that hole that was filthy he would not go in that hole that was dirty he'd rather die I guess and that's what happened that's how in those days they caught these little animals and so for the ermine purity was more precious than life and so we have Psalm 15 a call for us to be a holy people. A call for us to be purity. And it brings about this idea. Is purity that precious? Is holiness that precious to us? Um, 
But for us to understand Psalm 15, I think the first thing we have to do is set our framework for understanding God's holiness and understanding God in, in terms of Psalm 15 by understanding the context of the passage. And so you may know this, but the context of the passage, the context of Psalm 15 is found in 1 Chronicles in uh, chapters 13, 15, and 16. And in that, in that, we find this story. And I will tell it to you. You can look later and fact check me if you want to. In 1 Chronicles 13, and then chapters 15 and 16. And what we find there is the story of King David consulting with the leaders of Israel. And he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So he went to the city where it was at, Kiriath-Jerim, to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. Now, as a way of reminder, we know the Ark of the Covenant to be this wooden box cladded in gold and the contents of the box was uh, the Ten Commandments. And this represented the active presence of God to the people of Israel. And so it was important. This had fallen in uh, uh, disrepair. It had, it had become out of use, if you will, in the reign of King Saul. And so David wanted to bring Israel back around God and make God the center of Israel again and really make him uh, prominent and put him back in his rightful place as the, as the God of Israel, the center of Israel. And so he had this mission that he wanted to accomplish and that was go to Kiriath-Jerim, bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And so this is what they did. They built a cart, a brand new cart, and they got some oxen and they hitched the oxen to the cart and they went to Kiriath-Jerim and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on this cart and they made their way back to Jerusalem. Now along the way what we find is the one of the oxen stumbled and the Ark of the Covenant began to slide off. And this man, a Levitical priest by the name of Uzzah, reached his hand out to grab the Ark of the Covenant, which I think any of us would have tried to do. Any of us who love God and want to honor him and live for him would have done the same thing most likely and as he reached out to touch the ark his hand touched the ark and God killed him on the spot and so let's think about this what does this highlight for us as Christians as people who love God I think it highlights his holiness Uzzah died I believe because he was a sinful person a sinful man like all of us are who came in contact, direct contact with a holy God. And not to be gruesome, but as you study the, the I don't know Hebrew, but as you study in commentaries and study word studies, you find that the, 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 the wording in the Hebrew uh, points to the fact that God sent fire from heaven and Uzzah exploded on the spot. It's pretty gruesome to think about. But I think that uh, that puts a depth to this idea because we find that the next thing that happened is that King David aborted his mission I mean put yourself in that situation that's pretty understandable for King David in that moment to say okay guys it's time to abort mission let's, let's, let's put this thing somewhere else there was a fear and a holiness and, 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 a, and an understanding of this powerful God right there in their face and they understood it and so King David he aborted mission 
and he dropped off the ark at the house of a man whose name was Obed-Edom. And in the text we find that it says after three months that King David attempted his mission again, that he tried again, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it said that Obed-Edom's house was blessed for three months, that everything he did flourished because of the active presence that God was there with him. And so, after these three months, King David attempted again the mission of bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. But this time, he did it differently. He went to Scripture. He went to the Pentateuch, to the Old Testament Scripture, where it laid out exactly how you come in contact, how you deal with the Ark of the Covenant, how you go about moving it, and those types of things. And in hindsight, you would say, well, you know what? He probably should have done that in the first place. That would have been a smart thing to do. You know. I can make a joke. Men don't read directions, right? It, 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 cost, it cost a man his life. Uh, but he should have done that in the first place. Uh, and this is what we find that I find very interesting. Is that after he consulted God's word and uh, he went about the correct procedure of moving the ark, that he came across this. <clears throat> that it told him to gather all the priests of Israel together. Because those are the men who were supposed to be handling the ark. Those are the men that God designated to be the people who handled the ark of the covenant. And he told them these words, Consecrate yourself. So he called the priests together and he said, This is what you have to do. You have to consecrate yourself. What does that mean? It means we have to go out and we have to make a sacrifice for our sins and we have to do the things that we need to do to get forgiveness for our sins and to get holy and to get right before the Lord before we strike out on this mission again. And so I think those words, consecrate yourselves, that's kind of what holiness is. That's kind of what holiness means. It means we're set apart. It means we're consecrated to the Lord. And so there we again see the idea of holiness. And so they took the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it back to Jerusalem and they placed it in the tent or the tabernacle that King David had raised as the shelter for the Ark of the Covenant and they worshipped the Lord. And then they did something that was very Baptist to them. They had a fellowship meal. They had cakes of rice and I mean uh, of raisins and meat and that such a thing. And they worshipped the Lord. And I say this as way of, of transition. As we think about Psalm 15, as we think about this context that, that David is writing in, these are the things, this incident, this, this is when he wrote Psalm 15 was in the midst of this story we find in First Chronicles. We find, I believe, that he is mindful of the fact that this is a holy God. How do we understand holiness as God's people? A.A. A. Hodge says this, that the holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the idea, the conception, the idea of God's consummate perfection and his total glory. I think of it in this way, that if you think of an attribute that God has, his eternality, that he is eternal, of his sovereignty, that he is, rules over everything, he's sovereign over everything, if you think of his love as one of his attributes, all of these things are holy. 
So holiness is the thing that intertwines and binds all of his other attributes together. So is God love? Yes, but it is a holy love. Is God eternal? Yes, it is a holy eternality. Is he sovereign? Yes, it's a holy sovereignty. And so holiness is the thing that makes up the consummate perfection in his total glory. And so A. 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 Hodge said this, this great theologian of years past, that it is his infinite moral perfection. So think about that. Infinite, so no end to his moral perfection, crowning his infinite intelligence and power. What does God's word say about God's holiness? In Isaiah 57, 15, it says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, My name is holy. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. Psalm 111 says, Holy and awesome is his name. Job 34.10 Far be it from God to do wickedness, to do wrong. <clears throat> Revelation 15.4 You alone are holy. Let's think about that last one. That's a key. I'm going to tell you, this is what I've not done the other time. I'm going to give you the, the secret sauce at the beginning. Revelation 15.4 is the key to our holiness. Think about this. You alone are holy. Right? As we move along in this, keep that in the back of your mind. The only God is holiness. Holy. So what is the sense that we get about God's holiness? How do we pull all of this together when we think about God's holiness before we move on here? It's, this, it's two things. Two things that I think we, we get. That God is distinct and separate from us. He is other than we are in his essence, in his existence, in his nature. He is in comparable. He alone is holy. He alone is infinite in perfection. That is why his name is separate, is distinct. That's why his name is holy. And the second thing is that God's holiness means that he does not tolerate sin. <clears throat> Although everything in creation is influenced and affected by sin, it does not affect him. He remains pure. He remains unstained. And so we get this, that this holy God is on David's mind as he writes Psalm 15. As we read Psalm 15, 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He writes that with a mindset of a holy God. This God is holy God. Who can do this? Who can come into your holy hill? And I and I say this that it 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 is a penetrating question for us as we think about God's holiness. So if I was going along, I'm, I have a introduction and a and a kind of a context and a framework. We come to a first point in Psalm 15, chapter one. It's this. Our first point is that Psalm 15:1 is a penetrating question. Why do I say penetrating? Because it should penetrate to the very core of who we are, our hearts, to think about this text and this verse and this questions. Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? When I think about this, Psalm 15, 1, 
I think that the thing that we must do is understand, first of all, the nature of the question. What is really being said whenever David writes this question? It is, who can come into the presence of this holy God? Who of us? Who? Tell me someone who is this holy to be able to go into the presence of this holy God. Uzzah died. He touched God's holiness and he exploded. Who of us can come into the presence of this holy God? Who is the type of person that God will receive into his presence? I think these are the things that it's on David's heart and mind. And I believe that we see two things. One, that the spiritual condition of our heart, the spiritual conditions of our lives matter to God. As we approach God, He cares about our spiritual condition. The second thing I think we see is this. That this questions or these questions that we find in Psalm 15.1, it gets to the very heart of why we are created. The very heart of why we exist. These are weighty things to think about. So as we ask this question, who has the right to live, to be, to experience the presence of this holy God? We are face to face with this fact that we were created to be in relationship with him. And we may wonder, do I have the right to do the very thing that I was created to do? And so we may naturally ask, what, what can I do? What type of holy person do I have to be to be in the presence of this God? And we begin to build a case. We begin to, we begin to build a profile, an understanding of what kind of person do I have to be to be in the presence of this holy God? We find that in verses 2 through 5 as we find this probing answer. We had a penetrating question. Now we have a probing answer. And it's a probing answer because... It should probe our hearts as we go through this. We should ask, am I this type of person? Am I this type of holy person that God requires me to be? So let's look at, at, at verses 2 through 5 quickly. <clears throat> In verse 2 it says this, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And so we see this, a holy person's lifestyle exhibits integrity. This person is someone who is upright in conduct. We're talking about a person who um, is upright because their heart is upright. Their heart is right with God. And so we ask this question, is your life grounded in obedience to the word of God? Are you completely and totally walking in obedience? Secondly, we find this, a holy person's deeds value justice. This person lives a life that adheres to God's standards, which includes the quality of being free from favoritism, self-interest, and deception. So, we see this, Charles Spurgeon. He said, if we are not positively serving the Lord and doing his holy will to the best of our power, we may seriously debate our interest in divine things. So, our interest in God in God. In, things of, of, of him for trees which bear no fruit right John 15 must be hewn down and cast into the fire and so we ask this question are we serving the Lord with our life a third thing 
All the person's speech shows reliability. This person leads or guides to pasture with his words by being faithful in the things that they say. And so in other words, we see that God's people speaks truth because truth emanates from inside of them. Truth is who they are as a people. Again, Spurgeon says that our heart must be the sanctuary and the refuge of truth. Should it be banished from everyone else, from all besides us, and hunted down from among men, which kind of feels like where we are in America right now, at all risk, we must entertain the angel of truth, for truth is God's daughter. So do we speak truth into the lives of other people? Is that who we are? Verse 3, Psalm 15, verse 3, it says this, this person who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor or takes up a reproach against his friend. And so we see three more things in this verse. First, the holy person does not tread over people with their tongue. So the person, this holy person, he does not use cunning means to obtain information well, think about this with me. He does not use cunning means to obtain information on others so that he can then turn around and use that information to attack the name or the reputation of that person. So the question that we have is this. Are our words uplifting others? Do we use our words in a way that are gracious and uplifting and encouraging to others? Do our words go forth as a bomb of graciousness to others? Next, a holy person does not harm his fellow man. So this person is intentional to live in a way that their actions do not harm or bring disaster to their friends. <clears throat> in fact, we, our people of God, are call to rejoice with people when they rejoice, when they succeed, that we are happy about their success, that we are vigilant to protect their name and their character and their property and their life with, with how we live and the way we use words and how we care about others. And so the question is this, do you always desire the best for others? A third thing we find in verse 3. A holy person does not heap reproach on family or friends. And so this person lives in a way that he values his friends and his family to the extent that he does not do anything or allow anything to cause disrespect or disgrace to come upon other people. We go further. This may be where you may accuse me of meddling. Don't do that, by the way. We go further though. We're talking about a person who defends other people. And so as God's people, there is that temptation sometime to hear or spread rumors. And the holy person is this type of person that they do not tolerate the spreading of rumors or lies about others. But the implication of the text is that not only do they not uh, tolerate rumor spreading but they do not tolerate rumor spreaders 
Now I would add to this. If you, in a gracious way, right? In a gracious way, you want to interact with people. The Puritan John Tapp said, "What the tale bearer carrieth the devil in his tongue, but the tale hearer carrieth the devil in his ear." And so, do you heap reproach on others? In verse four, we continue. Psalm 15.4, it said, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own herd and does not change. So a holy person views the reprobate as rejected, but he values the people of God. And so this is a person who respects and he esteems those who have reverence and awe for God. The idea is that as God's people, we place no value on the exterior or the physical, but we look into the heart and we see this is one of God's children. This is one of God's people, and we prefer them. It's this idea, if you will, that we have two people. We have one who could... Uh, do things that would benefit me. A judge or a police officer could get me out of a ticket or this person is rich and they could they could maybe if I were nice to them give me money or those kind of things. Is there some value I can get from that person? And then you have this other person that in our estimation has no value, could do nothing for us. But one's a Christian and one's not. Who do you who do you honor? Who do you give preference to? holy person says I give preference to the one who is part of God's family part of that Christian family that I honor him above others then we see a second thing in verse 4 that a holy person holds himself accountable this person pledges to do evil or take scorn on themselves before they will allow it to come upon someone else before they will allow it to come Particularly upon someone that they have given their word to. So their word matters. But the question is, do you do the right thing for the glory of God every time, even if it may harm you? Psalm 15, verse 5. We're getting close to the end. This holy person, it says, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And so two, two last things that we think about this holy person. One, this holy person is not greedy. He does not value people over profit. He does not lend out money to others and charge interest. He cares more about people than he does profit. And so do you value people more than you value money? This holy person values the person. And then a last thing, a holy person cannot be bought. And so this person cannot be bought. This is a person who will not take a payment in return for a favor against one who is free of guilt. So the question is, would you compromise your principle for money or for favors? So we come to this last thing. In verse 5, at the very end, it says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Now, I want to say this before we continue on. 
I have been building a case. This is my case. Think of it almost as a lawyer building his case. One, so this is what I, exhibit A, right? God is holy. Okay? Second, God's holiness requires or mandates our holiness. Now, verses 2 through 5, as we think about this holy person, this is the thought that I have. Who, Lord, can be that person? Who among us can say, I do those things. I am that person. I am that person all the time, every time, 24-7. That's the life that I live. And so what we find, I think, is this, that this, 2 through 5, it shows us our inability to be holy. And that inability does something marvelous for us. What does it do? It points us to Jesus. That's a good amen spot, right? I heard it in the back. Amen. It points us to our Savior. This is what we have. Okay, and then we're coming to a close. So, And I saved the best for last. So hang with me. All of this stuff has been a build-up for this next two or three minutes, okay? So, this in, in verse 5, this holy person is promised. There's not a storm that will move them from the foundation or will uproot them from the place that they, have, have, that, that, that they are if they live this holy life. And then we come to this conclusion that no one is achieving this standard, that we're not doing this. And the answer is that the only person who can and has done this is Jesus, right? And so this psalm crushes us. It crushes us by revealing our inability to meet this holy standard, but it also comforts us because that inability points us to Jesus. And so this is how we respond. We respond by embracing both the comfort and the call of the gospel. We find this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We think about the comfort of the gospel. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we find that Jesus has lived a righteous life so that he could be our righteousness. Jesus achieved the righteousness that we could not. And so our response is to embrace this comfort we find in the gospel and run to Jesus. And so if you've heard nothing, and I know that you've heard it all because I know you've been attentive and I appreciate that, hear this, the most important thing that I can tell you is to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Every day, every minute, every hour, every chance you get, run to Jesus. He is our righteousness. He has done it for us. Every point of holiness required and dictated and put forth in Psalm 15, Jesus has fulfilled perfectly on our behalf. In John 14, 6, it says this. Jesus says, he proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes through the Father except through me. Now, 
bear with me for a minute. Let me remind you what we said in, under point one. It's very important, right? We said this, that this question that he asked in Psalm 15, 1, who can sojourn in your tent, who can dwell in your holy hill, gets to the very core of why we were created. And it causes us to ask this question, who has the right to live in the presence of this holy God? We're face to face with the fact, this is what we said earlier, that we are created to be in a relationship with him. And we wonder, do I have the right to do what I was created to do? And then Jesus comes along in verse uh, John 14, 6 and says, yes, you do, brother. Yes, you do, sister, because I am the door. I am the door to that God. You want to live and experience and be in the presence of that God. Come through me. I am the door. Think about this. We also said that we naturally ask, what must we do? What type of holy person must I be to experience God? We got to be the type of person that goes through that door named Jesus. That's all we have to be. We have to repent of our sin. We have to give up our effort. We have to put our faith in Jesus. We have to go through that door. We also see this. Not only do we embrace the comfort of the gospel, and here's our last thing. We embrace the call of the gospel. And the call of the gospel we find in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so the comfort of the gospel and the grace that we find in the gospel obligates us to live a godly, holy life. What we find is in Psalm 15 verses 2 through 5, that's not negated. Those things are not negated by grace. They're empowered by grace. They're empowered by grace that, to be achievable. And God expects us to strive for holiness. But he also understands when we sin, when we fail. But it does not mean we don't strive and we don't try to be holy. Titus 2.11 It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And listen to this. This is what the grace of God does. It's appeared and brought salvation to all people. Training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, listen, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And I think the thing, as we think about this, the gospel, or the call of the gospel, it doesn't negate, but it empowers holiness. That we ought to be people who are striving for more Christ-likeness and more obedience. Are we continually, day by day, seeing our lives as more obedient to God? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. This, this text in Psalm 15, we see you, God. We see you as holy. We see you as who you are. Is holy, powerful, almighty God. Separate from us, different from us. And Lord, we love you for it. We thank you for it. We thank you that you are that type of God. We thank you that you call us to be holy. That you call us to live for you and to be a holy people. But Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that 
he is our righteousness. That he earned that righteousness by how he lived his life. And then he takes that robe of righteousness and he cloaks it around us. And you view us in that righteousness. His righteousness. Oh, we thank you for Jesus. We ask as we leave this place that we would be comforted, encouraged, hopeful, thankful for Jesus. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.